0: Welcome to episode 95 of the TruthQuest podcast, The Truth About the Coronavirus Crisis, Lessons Learned, Part 2. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the coronavirus, price gouging, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, socialism, or secession comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean.com, And most recently, ThinkSpot. The video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, bitshoot.com, and brighteon.com. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest Podcast Patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more details. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. In the last episode, episode 94, part 1 of Lessons Learned from the Coronavirus Crisis, we covered some of the more lighter side of issues, like the importance of slowing down and enjoying our family, nature, and simple things in life. We also talked about the impact of the crisis will have on future attendance at traditional four-year colleges. Then, among other things, we examined the political arena through the lens of the crisis and pointed out the failings of socialized medical systems. Today we're going to look at this topic more from a public policy and economics perspective. And man, oh man, is there a lot to be learned. By far the greatest lesson the coronavirus crisis has taught us is that the federal government is too big to succeed. If you have not arrived at that conclusion prior to the crisis, you most definitely recognize it now. Even at the local level, how well prepared was your school system to move learning online despite the fact that a fair amount of their payroll is eaten up by superintendents and assistant associate superintendents? In big metropolitan areas, these non-educators, these administrators, pull down six-figure incomes, and they can't even stand up a sound online learning environment. Back to the feds. Don't get me wrong, not, not everything they do is bad, of course, but generally speaking, the sheer size of the federal leviathan sets it up for failure. And you know what? All of us, you, me, who sit at home wondering what Trump is going to do or bitch about or praise what Trump is doing or has done, we're, we're all part of the problem. How can I say such a thing in a time of crisis like this? Because it's true. That's why. Why else would the federal government, Trump, Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell, McCarthy, a 96-0 to 0 vote in the Senate and a voice vote in the House... How else would they have passed a completely unconstitutional so-called rescue bill that prints $2 trillion out of thin air while sprinkling a few hundred million here to a special interest and a few hundred million there, while sending you and me a $1,200 check expecting us to graciously accept our own money in return for those very same politicians who purposely destroyed our jobs? killed our companies for which we work, while raping us and the next two generations of the ability to save for the future. They do it because we let them. Now, normally I apologize when I go on rants like this, but I feel like the ranting I've done for the first 93 episodes has culminated in the federal government's response to the coronavirus crisis. One of the outcomes of the crisis, I hope, is a renewed interest in federalism, which is the system we have here in the United States, supposedly. It's a system of government in which the power is divided between a central authority and smaller units, which means a limited, not all-powerful, omnipotent federal government and 50 sovereign, powerful, free states with largely unlimited power. Their power is only limited by each state's constitution. But here in America, we spend all of our time musing about the goings-on in D.C. We praise Obama and Pelosi. We denigrate Trump and McConnell, or vice versa. If you watch any number of President Trump's Marathon Coronavirus Task Force news conferences, you can't help but notice the message of federalism coming from him. Now, make no mistake, Trump is no friend of the Constitution. He, he has continued undeclared wars in the surveillance state. He has signed unconstitutional executive orders and legislation, He has not closed or cut the budget of a single unconstitutional federal agency. But, but during these news conferences, you will hear Trump respond to reporters' questions with responses like, that's up to the state governments. That is up to the governor. We are here to support them if needed, but each state has to deal with this crisis on their own. Do you think for a minute that those words would ever come out of the mouths of Obama, Hillary, Joe, or Bernie? Hell no. To them... And to many establishment Republicans, every crisis is an opportunity. An opportunity for the federal government to grab more power. And power grabbed by the feds is never relinquished. Oh, and don't think for a minute that the Trump administration hasn't done the same thing. Hell, they shut down the entire economy. Speaking of the federal government, how many federal or state or local government employees lost their jobs during the economic shutdown? Like the tens of millions of us plebeians. Why shouldn't they feel the pain of the economic collapse that they impose on us? And don't give me this bullshit about who would run the government. First of all, since the government shut down the economy, there will be less tax revenue coming into the coffers to pay all these so-called public servants. And secondly, if the government can deem some of our companies that you and I work for non-essential, then they can do the same thing in their world. But they won't. Because they are entitled to their jobs, unlike you and me. It's infuriating. It's not just the United States federal government that is too big to succeed. All centralized governmental bodies suffer the same outcome. Think of the European Union in the shadow of Brexit. Think about the United Nations' abysmal and corrupt reputation. Think about the World Health Organization's performance during this crisis. Remember, this is a UN-connected bureaucracy that ostensibly exists to prevent global pandemics. And yet, they parroted the Chinese government's claim that the coronavirus could not be transmitted from person to person. They said masks don't protect anyone or prevent the spread of coronavirus. They advised against shutting borders and canceling flights. It's a corrupt organization, plain and simple. Part of the reason the federal government is too big to succeed is due to all the regulations and the size of the bureaucracy. One of the lessons learned from the coronavirus crisis is the understanding by large swaths of the American public that the federal government's regulatory state is not only unconstitutional in most cases, but actually hazardous to our health. We had shortages of everything when this crisis hit. Masks, ventilators, hospital rooms, hospitals, pharmaceuticals, gloves, and gowns. It took weeks for the feds to get their shit together. James Kettler, writing for Mises.org, put it this way, with the federal government in control, all the country's eggs were placed in a single basket. Any mistakes were bound to carry wide, rippling effects, end quote. Think about the delay in getting COVID-19 tests out. The feds imposed an incompetent government monopoly on the COVID-19 testing, blocking the use of better and faster tests developed by private companies. The Atlantic reported, quote, dozens of labs in the U.S. were eager to make tests and willing to test patients, but they were hamstrung by regulations for most of the month of February, even as the crisis crept silently across the nation, end quote. See, under FDA rules, labs could only use tests that had been developed themselves if they were granted an emergency use authorization, which was given solely to the CDC on February 4th. Stephen Pimentel, writing for Palladium, put it this way, quote, The FDA's poor performance has little to do with insufficient budgets. The countries with the most effective responses, Taiwan, for example, has relied on a decentralized set of quickly developed digital tools, coordinated by its digital ministry, but developed on the fly by private citizens. None of these countries allow their equivalents of the Food and Drug Administration to block virus testing and the production of masks. In the U.S., the FDA possesses exclusive authority to approve tests once the Department of Health and Human Services declares a public health emergency, which it did on January 31st. The FDA proceeded to grant such approval only to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. In February, the CDC developed a test of its own and distributed it to state labs, but the test kits had a bad reagent and did not work. During the entire month of February, as the virus continued to spread, the FDA granted no private lab approval to test. The first approval for a private lab was only issued on March 2nd, and quote, what a clusterfuck. The unnecessary delays likely cost lives. I call it unnecessary because without volumes of government regulations that the private sector is forced to jump through, those tests would have been made widely available quickly. Why was there a shortage of masks? Well, because federal regulations prohibited their importation and the regulations required to produce the N95 mask are enforced by the CDC's, get this, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Prospective makers of the N95 mask must submit detailed written applications to this monstrosity and send finished products to its personal protective technology laboratory for testing. Then the National Institute staff must personally inspect new manufacturing sites before they're allowed to start pumping out masks. It really doesn't sound conducive to a mass ramp up of supply during a pandemic, does it? So is the hyper-regulatory environment really necessary? At the end of the day, Pimentel sums up the Fed's ineptitude this way, quote, The American institutions charged with protecting public health are embedded in a bureaucratic culture that values turf-centered gatekeeping and control over effectiveness and outcome, end quote. And why would they care about outcomes when there's no consequences when they fail? At some point, the Feds basically started suspending their suffocating red tape in order to deal with the crisis. The FDA granted emergency authorization of the hydroxychloroquine use. They relaxed regulations in order to develop the virus vaccine. Even even the use of telemedicine has been stymied prior to the crisis due to privacy issues. Did you know that distillers that volunteered to produce hand sanitizer were for a time delayed by the FDA? Why, you ask? In the middle of a pandemic where hand sanitizer is completely gone from the store shelves, would the FDA delay its production? Well, you see, the distillers trying to switch over to producing hand sanitizer must first poison or denature the alcohol, or face being taxed as if it were producing an alcoholic beverage. See, you just can't let them make uncertified hand sanitizer. That's just the unconstitutional FDA. It's the tip of the iceberg. The amount of regulations that stymied the United States' response to this crisis was epic. I came across dozens of articles memorializing the complete ineptitude of the federal government. Some have accurately called it bureaucratic lethargy. I call it willful negligence on the part of Congress, which allows unelected bureaucrats in unconstitutional agencies to run roughshod over the citizens of this once great nation. When this crisis is over and we conduct a complete debrief on the incompetence of the CDC and the FDA, do you think their budgets will be cut by one red cent? If you think in the affirmative, you best think again. Remember the most recent federal bureaucracy scandals during the Obama administration? Remember the Department of Veterans Affairs, which was rewarded with more money after letting veterans die on secret waiting lists? Or how about the IRS? It was rewarded more money after persecuting Tea Party groups to help Obama's political prospects. And as always, the education monopoly is rewarded endlessly with more money despite stagnant or most often deteriorating student performance. The state governments are guilty of bureaucratic lethargy as well, but at least we, the people, can reach out and strangle our state legislators who actually live in our community. Amid the pandemic in Massachusetts, the state eased out-of-state medical licensing. Governor Charlie Baker said the licensing board, quote, put in place an emergency procedure that will make it possible for licensed out-of-state medical professionals and nurses to become licensed here in Massachusetts in one day, end quote. See, Before that, it took an average of 16 weeks for a licensed out-of-state medical worker to apply for and receive its Massachusetts medical license. Apparently, the unnecessary paperwork and fees aren't there to make people safer, huh? New York State acted to relieve the enormous pressure on frontline medical workers by allowing qualified graduates of foreign medical schools to contribute to the COVID-19 emergency response. Another example of the perils of occupational licensing The question we all must ask is, the question we must ask is, if we can eliminate the bureaucracy and regulation and delays during an emergency, are the bureaucracies, regulations, and delays really necessary to begin with? The answer is likely a resounding no. Next question, how do we eliminate them permanently? One of the most notorious or evil policies adopted by states are certificate of need laws, which prevents new medical devices and facilities from being built and operated unless a need is proven. These laws are ripe for exploitation by political corruption, as medical providers fearing competition can encourage bureaucrats to determine that another facility isn't needed if their specific area already has one. In other words, Companies or facilities get to determine if a competitor can enter their market. What other industry does this? The North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services temporarily lifted a regulation requiring hospitals to get state permission to add beds. The rule stated that hospitals could not add more than 10% of their licensed bed capacity without state approval. Why, you ask, would a legislature limit the number of hospital beds in a given state? Like, what is gained by society by such limitations? During this crisis, there have been other non-healthcare-related regulations exposed as corrupt and useless, such as labor laws. Did you know that it's against the law in most states for wait staff to come into work and only work for tips? So the government shuts down the restaurant industry, limiting it to carry-out only, and then restricts workers to voluntarily work for tips. The government's position is no job is better than one that violates their stupid labor laws. Oh, in the city of Baltimore, they stopped arresting and dismissed pending charges for criminals for crimes like drug possession, prostitution, and minor traffic infractions. You know, victimless crimes. So if they pose no threat to the public, why were they ever illegal? The government is basically admitting that these victimless crimes needlessly send people to jail, put them on the criminal justice system, and waste tax dollars. Again, I'll pose the question. Whatever laws and regulations can be abandoned during a crisis, shouldn't they probably never have been on the books in the first place? Related to the failure of the federal government and the drastic need for deregulation, the coronavirus crisis is proof positive that we need to return the country back to its constitutional roots. There is way too much money and power in D.C. Every 7 to 10 years, we live through another Federal Reserve-induced market bubble. If you're interested in a deep dive into the Constitution, check out Episode 3, The Truth About the Constitution. As discussed in detail in Episode 62, The Truth About Gold and Sound Money, one of the few things the federal government is supposed to do, according to Article 1, Section 8, which reads, in part, the Congress shall have the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and a foreign coin to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. Did you notice there's no mention of paper money in there? It just talks about coins. Then, in section 10 of the same article, the Constitution states restrictions on the power of the states. It states in part, quote, no states shall coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payments of debts, end quote. Notice again, No mention of printing money. As a matter of fact, the Constitution forbid the issuance of paper money. As Jacob Hornberger puts it, quote, "...through that provision in the Constitution, the framers expressly prohibited the states from issuing paper money. It prohibited them from making anything but gold coins and silver coins legal, tender, or official money. It prohibited the states from issuing their own coins, leaving that power and responsibility to the federal government." End quote. So, when Congress passed and Trump signed that so-called $2 trillion rescue bill, they were in direct violation of the Constitution. The only reason the dollar is not collapsing is because the U.S. is the best of the worst, meaning every central bank in the world is printing money and inflating their balance sheet. At some point, some country is going to revert back to some type of sound money system. They're going to say, hey, I got X tons of gold in my vault, Gold is valued at $2,000 an ounce, so we're going to issue gold certificates worth X trillions of dollars backed by the gold in our vaults. They'll say they will no longer print money. If they acquire more gold, they can use it to issue more gold certificates. But the era of fiat currency is over. When that happens, it will mean the end of the U.S. dollar once and for all. This crisis has also taught us three other money-related lessons. Number one, Wealth is fleeting, as evidenced by the stock market's 30% decline in a matter of days. Number two, it taught us the importance of savings. Your mom and Dave Ramsey have been telling you for decades, you need to save for a rainy day, or in this case, a worldwide pandemic. Lesson, learning to stretch a dollar and to live on less than you make over a lifetime is the way to wealth. But why didn't most Americans have any savings when this crisis hit? Because of the government. How can I blame the government for an individual's choice? Excellent question. But think about it. What is the motivation to save? It's the prospect of earning interest, right? Where have interest rates been the last 12 years or so? Damn near zero. Why was that? Because the market set the price of money? Millions and billions of people transacting amongst themselves, all determining the rate of interest? Hell no. The interest rate has largely been determined by the Federal Reserve as they manipulate the banking industry, with that impact trickling down to you and me on Main Street. With tens of millions of people filing for unemployment in the U.S., who will survive economically? Savers, of course. Unfortunately, there aren't many of them here in the States. And finally, this crisis proved once and for all that the stock market was a huge Federal Reserve-induced bubble, 12 years in the making. How can a virus bring down the strongest economy ever? Unless, of course, it was a bubble to begin with, and the virus was just the pin that popped the bubble. After all, as Peter Schiff says, it's not the size of the pin that matters, it's the size of the bubble that it pricks. If you're looking for an easy-to-read reference guide to have on your desk or bookshelf that covers many of the topics tackled here on the Truth Quest podcast, Grab a copy of my book, Critical Thinking, spelled with a P like Paul. The subtitle is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking and Common Sense in Politics and Public Policy. In it, I tackle dozens of public policy issues from a logical and pragmatic perspective. It's available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more information. And as always, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.